Welcome to the Draft Deeper Podcast. This is your host, Nathan Grubel. Joining me as always is my producer, Kevin Black. Also joining me tonight is somebody who I haven't had on the show in, in quite a while. Certainly, I, I haven't had him during the 2022 draft cycle up to this point, but I did have him on a few times during the 2021 cycle, and I believe he was one of the guests I was able to have on during some 2020 conversation and or 2020 draft wrap up as well. One of my favorite follows on social media, Twitter specifically, you know where to find him. He's at Mavs draft, one of the hosts of the locked on NBA draft podcast. And I'm going to give you some flowers and I'm going to give you an apology. Richard Stamen is on the show tonight because I, I did an earlier podcast with Raphael and I talked about how, Raphael and Simon Rath are two of my favorite people on social media who introduced me to prospects who I have no idea who the hell they are. I'm, I'm, I apologize, my friend. You should have absolutely been included in that conversation because you do the true work of a scout just like those two do. You are digging in the weeds. You are uncovering prospects underneath rocks. You are quite literally doing what scouting is. It's all about giving players opportunity to showcase their talents on a greater level. And you and I have talked about that in the past. We have done multiple sleeper podcasts, but it's only fitting that if I am going to do a show based around 2022 NBA draft sleepers, bring up some names that aren't quite in the first round of conversation. There is no one else better to do it with than you. So Richard Stamen is on the show tonight. Rich, how you doing? Hey, I'm I'm doing good. It's nice to be back, and uh, thank you very much for the kind words. Uh, I I didn't think twice. I actually listened to the last couple of episodes. And, <laughs> by the way, loved for anybody listening. If you haven't heard the one with Raphael, that was an incredible episode. I learned so much from that. Uh, so keep up the great work. I don't care if you mention me or don't mention me. I'm not doing it for like clout or whatever. I just want to be right. You know that that man that man tells the best stories. He has the best insight from being on the road. So it, it's only it's only fitting that when I have him on the show, I expect to learn something about these prospects that I definitely didn't know, not just on the court, but but off the court as well. So yeah, anybody in the audience who didn't catch that episode with Raphael, we, we went over some international draft prospects and we also um, got a few names out of them who are true, true sleepers, either for this class or in potential upcoming drafts as well. He is He is quite literally all over the world spanning the globe to find the next great NBA draft prospects. So definitely go check that episode out if you haven't, but I want to get started today. So if anybody, for whatever reason, wouldn't be following Rich, AKA Mavs Draft on social media, first of all, I can't imagine that's the case if you're listening to my podcast, but if for whatever reason that would be the case, Rich has been a credentialed reporter slash scout for quite a while, being able to attend games. He is based in the Texas area. He loves getting out to um, TCU games. He loves watching the Texas teams on film, breaking down all of their prospects. And I believe, Rich, if I'm correct, you were just, were you just at the TCU Texas Tech game, correct? And Kansas. Um, it was, it has been an eventful week of TCU basketball. <laughs> so, I, I will have a lot of insight on on uh, on some of the guys we're talking about, but yes, I was at that Texas Tech game, and you know, I thought it I thought it couldn't get crazier. 
then beating the number one defense at home, number nine team, and it was a part of a historic night where seven of the top 10 teams fell, including Kansas. And then three nights later, they go and beat Kansas again. And obviously, when we're recording this, they're about to play Kansas again. And then they play West Virginia Saturday. They have four games in seven days. So big test for them. Well, the TCU program headed up by one of my favorite college coaches ever, um, Jamie Dixon. I was, I was a big fan of the Pitt teams back in the day with, with Dwan Blair and LeVance Fields and, and Sam Young. So seeing him have success does not shock me in the slightest. And seeing them have success also shouldn't shock me because they do have one of the more dynamic point guards in the country, which is one of the prospects who I did want to talk with you about tonight, Rich, because I see you post about him. Not not all the time. I don't want to make you I don't want to make you out to be like a Mike Miles stan account, but you certainly do give him praise and, and we do need to give him credit where credit is due. Um, he did a fantastic job over the summer with Team USA. He was a freshman standout last year at TCU and now coming back for his sophomore campaign. He has put that team on his back in many different ways offensively this year he's averaging 15.4 points per game 3.6 rebounds 4.1 assists just under 39 percent from the field um, near 31 percent for three-point range 74 percent from the free throw line one and a half steals per game 2.8 turnovers leading him to a 16.3 per and a 48.8 true shooting percentage so the first thing that might stand out to my audience if they're listening to this show carefully would be some of those shooting percentages. Rich, I know that you just, you had a tweet that you sent out. Um, you, Nate Babcock, Chuck's even talked about him a little bit. I know we have some fans of, of Mike here at No Ceilings. Everyone's kind of made it a point to say, look past the percentages and kind of lean more into the eye test than what you believe Mike Miles could actually be, not just as a college point guard, but but on an NBA stage. And I, I don't know if anyone's quite making the argument for him to be like a, a first-round pick, but in terms of getting value at that position in the second round, where it just seems like backup point guard is sometimes ignored in the NBA, particularly from by good teams, and when you don't have a really good point guard to be able to bring off the bench sometimes it, it can crater second units and and make offense inefficient at the nba level which is usually why point veteran point guards are some of the first guys that get the calls in the buyout market they do end up getting picked up i'd say pretty quickly once free agency starts but they don't quite get their love in the draft, particularly in like the second round. Like there were a number of senior point guards last year who I thought could have absolutely been drafted, but they weren't. Um, Mike Miles is younger than that. He's not a senior. He's a sophomore, but he strikes me as somebody who could be a, a, a pretty decent backup in the NBA as a floor. Yet it, it's crazy. It, it, depending on who you talk to, they might not have him in like the top 45 of their board, but I know that you've seen him in person. You've scouted the tape. Give me the Mike Miles rundown, Rich. Give me and my audience the Mike Miles rundown, Rich, the best that you can, and, and kind of make make your case as to why he should be um, viewed as a top forty-five draft prospect. Yeah, so this might be a little bit lengthy in advance, so I will give you that fair warning. I I want you on because you're detailed <laughs> and because you're lengthy. So go ahead. Perfect. So I'll start with kind of what you left off at with the age. 
he doesn't turn 20 until August. So he's going to be, say he gets drafted. He's 19 on draft day, same age as a lot of freshmen, honestly younger than a lot of freshmen. That's how he was able to be on that U19 team last year with Chet Holmgren, Johnny Davis, uh, you know, the whole roster with everybody, all the star studded talent that was there. The big thing for Mike Miles is he started the year, it was like the first 12 or so games. He scored double digits in every game. But like you said, the efficiency just wasn't there. The the biggest way I can point to age being an issue with that is he really tried forcing one shot that kept killing him. And that was his runner. If you look at the last five games heading into Thursday, I don't know what he's going to do tonight against Kansas, but against Baylor, West Virginia, Texas, Texas Tech, and Kansas, and they went three and two in this in this stretch. He stopped shooting the runner almost entirely. He took one one shot of it against Kansas, from what I remember. And in that span, he's averaging eighteen points a game, four point six uh, assists. He's also not turning the ball over. That's another sign of the growth in youth and everything. Four point, uh, or excuse me, three rebounds a game. Also three steals a game. I'll get to the defense in a minute, but. That's on 47% shooting, 35% from three. It's not really that far off from a season average of around 31, 32. So the three-point shot hasn't changed, but the field goal percentage has skyrocketed. And it's because he stopped taking that runner. If you remove runners from his entire totals, his efficiency really takes off from the 38%. He crosses 40. It's a huge difference maker. So I think not only once he gets that runner down, but also in college stops using it more like more often, you're going to see his numbers take off. but I, I don't have the splits, but I would imagine that shot has really cratered where he's at because he only rates yes. out in the 16th percentile on spot-ups, and he rates out in the 14th percentile on runners, which would absolutely equate. I, I would imagine that that's a big reason why he would rate out so low on, on spot-ups considering he is more than plus in, in plenty of other shot types. Yeah, I need to do some quick math here, but he's 15 of 60 on runners for the year that <laughs> that would so do you it took out, i'm gonna you know what i'm gonna get out my calculator right now if take out 60 all, shot attempts out yeah. runners he is 115 of 277 which is his field goal percentage goes up to 41 and a half so that's up from that's up three whole percentage points if you just take out the runner yeah and to me that's been an absolute killer to him the production I will be like, I had him top 30 pre-draft ultimately because I do think you kind of hit it on the head. Backup point guards aren't a bad thing. Those guys stick. And also most drafts, especially ones that are not the strongest, like this one is not the strongest, generally doesn't have more than 30 players that really hit. And in fact, most of them don't even have 20 players that stick around for 10 years. Mike Miles very well could stick around for 10 years. You think about the fact that if he were drafted this year, a 10 year career means he just plays till he's 30. And then the shooting is incredible. The jump shot, I, I don't care what the percentages are. And I know the free throw percentage has been a little bit low, but to me, he has almost perfect release on, perfect release on his form. The base is really good. The jump shot is just projectable. So I fully buy that. He can score at all three levels. His mid-range is nice. He can shoot off the dribble. He has a nasty crossover. Uh, I know last year he got Jared Butler and Davion Mitchell in a game. This year he died. <laughs> I'm blanking on who it was. I want to say it might have been Sohan. Sohan, I still don't know how to say his name right. I've heard seven different pronunciations, but he gets elite defenders to drop. Like that is that is a hard skill to have in college is just dropping these elite collegiate defenders. And he does it. And I'm really confident in that. He has, you know, he can finish with both hands. He can drive with both hands, dribble with both hands, all of it. So there's a lot of, like I, I call those intangible skills that like you just can't teach at 19 years old to be this good. 
at, with his left hand also. I think it's very rare you see stuff like that. And also he manipulates pick and rolls very well. And then to the defensive end, like I said, I would get to, he forces turnovers. He knows how to position himself right. The Texas Tech game is a very good example of that. He was being posted up against Bryson Williams, who is much bigger than he is both both vertically and horizontally. And he drew an offensive foul by being at perfect position the whole time. And actually was a key play that might've won them the game, all things considered. But you watch some of his blocks he gets in, he, he knows how to protect the rim against guards as a help defender, which I don't know how many other guards I can say that about. So I hope that's a good pitch. For me, being 19 and having all those skills and still growing and polishing his game, that screams almost starter-level point guard to me. That was going to be my, my next question, and, and maybe my audience gets a little disappointed. I don't know how much I'm going to have to necessarily chime in about some of these guys, even though I've done my homework, but Rich does such an excellent job at breaking these guys down. But that was going to be where I went next. So I have, for the people who are high enough on Mike Miles, like kind of close to where you are, they would have Mike in the conversation with some of the other quote-unquote top point guards in this draft class. Like I think it's safe to say whether you're at the very high end on Ty Ty Washington or even lower on him, he's probably the first point guard on the majority of boards, right? Then you get to the Kennedy Chandlers of the world, the Yon Monteros of the world, the J.D. Davisons of the world. If he's in this draft class, which I actually wrote on my morning, don't call him for no sailors. I think he would be one of the guys better served to, to, to go back to school and have much more better command of the point guard position with two of those other guys moving ahead in, in, in front of him. Um, you you kind of have Miles in that conversation. And if you think that Miles has that, that starter level upside, where would you kind of rank him uh, uh, amongst those other guys? Because, like, I have <sighs> Kennedy Chandler's in, like, that 25 to 35 range for me. Same, I guess, with, with Jan Montero. But I'm kind of also of the mindset that, that those two guys – would be better served as being backups in the NBA versus long-term stars. And when I look at Mike Miles, the, the biggest thing that stuck out to me with Kennedy Chandler and Yon Montero is that I don't know how well they're going to be able to create against size, especially when you get inside the arc. And they're not exactly prone to taking efficient jump shots from behind the arc. Miles, as you pointed out in one of your explanations, Rich, does so good of a job at breaking people down and creating separation to be able to go to that jump shot, which he gets off the ground for. It's not a it's not a set shot or a grounded shot like a Kennedy Chandler, for example. Miles gets into that pull-up jump shot so well, and it looks so clean that when we talk about that level of shot creation, whether it's against another guard or against somebody bigger than him, for the whole year, he still rates out in the 84th percentile in terms of uh, scoring and isolations in the 87th percentile in terms of isolations, including passes. So I factor that in. Where would you rank him amongst the, the other point guards if that's the range you're going to have him in, like knocking on the door of the top 30? Yeah, so for me, I have him, depending on the day, I have him as the sixth or seventh best point guard in the class. You hit it on the head about Kennedy Chandler. I have him very low compared to draft Twitter. Uh, I'd be hesitant to take him first round just because – I don't see how he scores over size. I mean, he can't shoot against anybody over 6'5". Um, so how do you take advantage of a switch? But that's a whole different story. So for me, I mean, yeah, I have him sixth 
among guards. And I do think in a, such a weak draft class where, of course, there will be somebody who out of left field in the guard class definitely does hit. It happens every single year. There's a undrafted guard or very late second round guard that sticks. It'll probably happen this year. For all we know, that could be Mike Miles this year. So um, for me, I'm pretty confident, though, that he's going to, on my board, rank among the top seven. I, I really can't see him slipping below seven among who, point guards. Who are the other point guards that you have in that conversation, if you don't mind me asking? Yeah, so uh, I think you raised, first of all, one of them is uh, Gene Montero, and I think you did raise a good point. I'm still unsure how to evaluate him, so I kind of just left him based on what I remember. <laughs> I, I, I think everybody is my friend. I need, yeah. I need the good cut talking to for Matt Babcock about him. <laughs> yeah, so, and also two of these guys, I'm not sure if they classify three, really, uh, if they count as point guards, but I put Jaden Ivey as one because I think he'll eventually kind of okay. have two in the NBA. That was a tough one, but him, Ty Ty Washington, Jaden Hardy, Gene Montero, Hugo Be- uh, Besson, and then depending on the day, Trevor Keels or Mike Miles. Okay, so definitely a, a lot of names in there that I agree. They can go either way. I wasn't necessarily thinking of them in that quote-unquote point guard conversation, but you do make a point about if they're hitting their optimal ceiling, they're probably going to be lead ball handlers where they go. So sure, you you, you can put them in the conversation. And that is, that is appropriate. So you do have Mike Miles right in the thick of it. I have him as, as as most likely a top 45 guy when it's all said and done. Once we get to like 40 on my board and on, it it is still it's still figuring out a big mess. Um that backlog from like 40 all the way to 75. Not that not that 15 all the way to 35 or 40 isn't isn't its own kind of backlog in this particular draft, but I definitely have some sorting out to do when it comes to second round and then ultimately building out to 75 and then hopefully a top 100 is where I'd really like to land and, and start breaking things down with once we get past the tournament. But for me, I would agree with you. Mike Miles is in um, that, that 30 to 40 conversation because I don't know, I, I put more value into having a really good backup point guard, kind of like you and I can agree on like, like, like Rich, you're a Mavs guy. Like being able to have a guy like Jalen Brunson, not that they're a direct one-to-one comparison, but Having a point guard who can come in who's in that sort of neighborhood in terms of offensive shot creator as well as he just kind of knows how to play the game, which there people have questions about how Mike Miles goes about passing and making different reads out of pick and roll and this and that and this and that. But at the end of the day, Mike Miles looks very comfortable on the basketball court. You can tell that with Team USA. You can tell that in two years at TCU. And just having one of those guys who can come in, they know what they're doing, and they can hit tough shots when they're called upon, I really think that brings a lot of tremendous value to an NBA team, especially when you can get somebody at Miles' age who has the upside of being like a spot starter, or maybe he can even start on on a team like the Mavericks, for example, who have like a, a bigger playmaker. As everybody likes to say, if you have that bigger playmaker, like a Luka, LeBron, whatever name you want to throw out there, that, that makes it a lot easier to bring in somebody like Miles into the lineup and be able to kind of just count on him to do what he does best, which is make shots and make shots in spades. When we talk about shifty creators off the bounce at that spot, there are a few guys in the country who have the ability to do it as well as Miles. The efficiencies, sure, they've been up and down throughout the year, but if we're talking just raw ability, I mean, how many more guys in the country are truly more exciting to watch than, than Mike Miles? So I, I would agree with you. He absolutely 
deserves to be in the conversation. And I'm glad I had you on to give a pitch for him because I, I, I'm go, I was going back and I can't really remember how many times I've actually talked about Mike Miles in the podcast. He's definitely been one of the prospects I, I haven't given his flowers to enough as well, but that's why I wanted to mention him on this podcast, not only because you, you, you saw him in person. I know that, that you've been following him for quite a while, but another team that you brought up has a prospect in Terrence Shannon Jr., who I have talked about on this podcast. I specifically remember the episode last year that I did with Chuck from Chuck and Darts when we were talking about these second-round value-type wings, and I had Terrence Shannon in a conversation um, with Aaron Henry from Michigan State, with Herb Jones from Alabama. I had him sort of in that conversation. And out of some of those guys that we talked about on that podcast, I like Terrence Shannon the most. And he's his stock has been really up and down this year, mainly because he's he's been injured some. He's been in and out of the lineup. He's been a starter. He's been Texas Tech's point guard at times. He's been out of the starting lineup. His situation this year has been so much in flux that if people still are reserved about him and have questions, I completely understand in terms of what that means for his NBA draft prospects. But when you just look at some of the numbers specifically, 10.6 points per game still, 2.8 rebounds, 2 assists, shooting 45% from the field, almost 33% from 3, and 81% from the line with a 16.4 PER, 56.8 true shooting percentage. Rich, I kind of said last year, if you weren't buying into Terrence Shannon, you might have been a little afraid that because of how inconsistent he is ultimately on the offensive end in terms of the jump shooting, that the low end for him could be like a Justin Anderson type of outcome, somebody who hasn't quite been able to stick in the NBA. I I won't say hasn't been quite. he, He hasn't been able to stick. In the NBA, but that might be like a low end outcome for Shannon. But I just, I just think he's better than that. He still rates out in the 68th percentile in terms of total offense, 96 on spot ups, 85th in transition, um, 54th percentile on jumpers. If we want to talk about the jump shot as a question, he still rates out well there. He finishes well around the basket in the half court set, 78th percentile, 86th on catch and shoots. It's really, he gets into these pretty low percentile rankings when he's asked to do too much within the offense, when he's asked to play more and more pick and roll and be a primary initiator, when he's asked to create his own jump shot off the dribble, when you give him a little too much responsibility and ask him to do things outside of his comfort zone, that's when you get some of these inefficient games from Terrence Shannon Jr. on the offensive end. But if you just look at what he can do, which is hit open spot up shots, he's a really good cutter to the basket. He's an excellent transition finisher and he defends his absolute arse off, which I'm assuming you'll have thoughts on his defense as well. I still think that this guy is, is a legitimate sleeper, similar to Nick on our No Ceiling staff. He wrote about him at, for one of his first sleeper deep dives. I think this guy's still a top 60 player in this class, despite some of the up and downs. What do you think about Terrence Shannon? Yeah, so I, I, I'll be 100% honest. I'm still pretty low on him. Uh, it all really stems from the jump shot. The jump shot, and it's all offensive. Let's, the defense, I'll start with the good. The defense is <laughs> phenomenal. Uh, incredibly intelligent. He rotates well. He'll be a good on-ball defender. He'll be a good team defender. Everything checks out on that end. Like He, he doesn't need to be in stance to lock guys up. That's pretty rare. Um, he's a wing. He can guard up. He can guard down. Mostly guard down, but he can guard pretty much threes and fours is what I mean by guarding up. He can't guard fives, but... 
you can guard, you know, I think if you put him, this is kind of high praise, but if you put him on someone that has the same game as Kawhi Leonard, he's not going to be that bad, um, which is a really good thing to say about someone defensively. And then they could also take guards, no problem. He, he doesn't let first steps get to him. And it's really promising on that end. I, I really do believe that defense is going to translate. However, on offense, it really stems from the jumper, right? Like the, the left hand, um, or excuse me, the right hand, the guide hand is really in its way. It feels like, I mean, I, I love the touch, hence his 80 plus percent free throw percentage, but uh, I just don't know if he has the form and the ability to shoot, if that makes sense. Because like I said, the form is fine, but my question is, and I think you can kind of see this from the TCU game, especially in the last possession where I don't know if he knows how to shoot in the right times. And I think that's a big issue for him where he doesn't know how to use his jump shot because the form should be good. And when you watch him in practice, I got a close look. Like the form is really nice. I posted a video. It's pretty projectable, but in game, he just, he panics when he thinks he has to shoot and it really worries me. And then you get to the fact that he needs to tighten his handle. Quick offense is a little bit of an issue for him from what I've noticed when there's uh, when there's less than 10 seconds and he has to bail out the offense, that's actually his absolute worst offense. Yep. Um, and, and to me, that's a big concern because if you're going to have that, you need to at least be an off-ball threat because I can excuse it that way, you know, where fine, not everybody can create in under 10 seconds. It's a totally understandable thing, especially on wings. But I, I do really worry about just the shot, the creation, and really just adjusting to NBA tempo and creating for others. But what if he isn't asked to do those things, though? Like, what what if the ball isn't in his hands at, at, towards the end of shot clocks and, and he's asked to operate much more off the ball? He's asked to be used as a cutter. He's, he's looked at as a transition finisher. When we talk about the jump shooting, what if he's only asked to hit open catch-and-shoot shots within the flow of the offense? Um, I, I guess to the jump shooting point, I can agree with you in the sense that sometimes he seems – hesitant and sometimes there there are moments where maybe he's a little too open and he doesn't fully recognize like oh I'm supposed to shoot this jump shot which that also happens to to, to guys in, in the NBA as well sometimes they're a little too open and they elect to pass up the jump shot for for whatever reason uh, I'm a 76ers guy see Tobias Harris <laughs> night in and night out for for the 76ers but what if he does kind of get comfortable in that more off-ball role and he's not asked to be this creator that he's kind of had to be at times at Texas Tech? Because, like, I do think it's one thing to experiment with a player and, and give him a little bit of rope to try something new and experiment. But when they were playing some of those lineups where it's like they, they want to go to this everyone's – huge lineup in, in terms of college like everybody in the lineups anywhere from like 6'6 six, six to like 6'9 and you get to like Terrence Shannon being the smallest guy on the court well he kind of has to be like the fact of point guard he shouldn't be the de facto point guard he shouldn't be bringing the ball up the floor getting them into offense running everything out of pick and roll like he that that's not the type of guy he is but I can I can envision a role for him in the NBA where he isn't asked to do too much offensively he's just asked to hit whatever open shot is there for him within the flow of the game. And then you're able to completely unleash him as this multi-positional defender, which you also outlined brilliantly. I do think I would agree with you. That's, that's his best value in, in the NBA. Is, is that still somebody that we can look at taking in the second round? Again, we're not talking about a first round pick. We're talking about 
a second round pick, a player who we know is going to have flaws. Is that somebody you can still use a draft pick on, or do you think we're just going to get to the point where we'll see Terrence Shannon Jr. you know, on a camp roster because he, he was an undrafted free agent. Somebody just brings him to the camp. Yeah, I think it's going to have to be an uphill battle. I mean, kind of, I, I do agree that there is a chance, like you said, obviously the shot clock stuff was just more to emphasize the lack of creation sure. because, because Texas tech, you kind of hit it on that. I mean, dude, their, their roster is not built for someone like Terrence Shannon. They have, they really, I don't think they have a true point guard Their Everybody eats system doesn't really work where nobody takes over 10 shots. It, it doesn't work for guys like Terrence Shannon. Um, but my worry is if he's not going to be a shooter in year one, I'd be very surprised if he is. Is he a shooter in year two? Maybe by then he's 24 and, and heading into his third year, he's going to be 25 years old. So I get a little bit worried about that. How patient can you be? How quick can he turn around his shot? The jump shot is going to be his ticket. I mean, he very well could. I mean, because free throw percentage, we've learned this. We should know this by now. Free throw percentage matters more than three point percentage, unless it's like historically, like if you're shooting 22% from three, fine. Like, you know, I'm not going to, I'll take that. But free throw percentage generally indicates a little bit better. I mean, Franz Wagner, for example, I didn't think was going to be a good shooter at all for a couple of years. And year one, he's a 36% three-point shooter. But ultimately, it really does come down to how teams see the three-point shooting, how he does in workouts. Because I, I ultimately, even before any of this, I would say he is probably going to get a late second round pick. The three and D mold, there aren't, there's a lot of wings. I don't know how many of them realistically could be three indeed day one. Terrence Shannon's a real candidate. So that alone is going to get him drafted. I, I'd be pretty shocked if he's not drafted, but on the off chance, he isn't summer league. He'll get a lot of chances and hundred percent. He'll get a training camp in G league run at least. And I think the G league would be really good for him. I think he'd benefit from a two way. I, I would agree with you on that as well. Um, so whether you're, a little high on Terrence Shannon, a little low on Terrence Shannon. I think we can we can be in agreement that he, he does have an NBA chance in his future. It will be up to him in terms of what he does with it and how much he can make of it. So let's move into some other names that I have pegged as sleepers, guys who I have not talked about yet on the podcast. The first one I wanted to do, um, I wanted to go into David Roddy, the Colorado State guard wing forward center i don't know what to call him for that team to be perfectly honest he kind of does a little bit of everything he is an incredibly unique basketball player listed at six foot five 252 pounds 19.4 points per game 7.7 rebounds 2.9 assists shooting 57 percent from the field 47 percent from three-point range 70 and a half from the free throw line, that's that's actually an interesting point to note. When we uh, talk about Mr. Roddy, you just brought up the, the free throw percentage versus the three-point percentage. That'll be an interesting debate. Over a steal and a block per game, 31.3 PER, 65.4 true shooting percentage. But it gets better when you look into some of the offensive synergy numbers. 97th in terms of total offense. 99th percentile in pick, scoring out of pick and rolls, cuts and off screens. 91st on post-ups, 88th in isolation, 67th on spot-ups, 58th on putbacks, and 55th in transition scoring, 98th percentile in terms of pick and rolls, including passes, 91st percentile in terms of isolations, including passes, 79th percentile in terms of post-ups, including passes, 
97 percentile on jumpers and around the basket, 98th on catch and shoot shots, 94th all jump shots off the dribble. That is one hell of an offensive case for a player to be drafted in the NBA. Now, he is truer to the definition of sleeper than guys like Miles and Terrence Shannon are, for example. They're much more household names. They're playing for bigger programs in the Big 12. We've seen them perform well on bigger stages. Mr. Roddy hasn't had the same exact stage at Colorado State, but his name has really, really come around in draft circles just because of how efficient of a player he's been on the offensive end, which to his credit, he is an inventive passer. His jump shooting mechanics are incredibly clean. He can hit a variety of shots. He seems to be able to hit those shots over whoever is guarding him. And if he's not able to get by somebody, he's more than comfortable going into this one or two dribble move that he kind of puts his back to the basket and he either gets rid of the ball or he uses his footwork to be able to use an up and under move to ultimately score at the basket, even over someone who's quote unquote bigger than him. Um, He's a very safe bet, in my opinion, to be a legitimate catch and shoot guy. Again, like I said, some of the passing offense is interesting. His overall IQ, his awareness, he's one of the smartest players, in my opinion, in this draft class from the film that I've seen. However, he's also one of the players in this class. It's one thing to say that we can choose certain guys and we can call them out by saying, well, if he's on an NBA floor, Coaches are going to be able to scheme for him, pick him apart, put him in different spots defensively, and they're going to be able to abuse him on the defensive end. And sometimes we say that about guys, and it's ultimately not as deserved. I feel like I can actually say that about Roddy. Um, I don't know what position he'll ultimately be able to guard, if any, at the next level. And that really concerns me. He's not quick enough to keep up with guards on the perimeter. He gets blown by, and then he, 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 he does try. It's not that he doesn't play defense without effort. He does. He tries really hard. But he's not quick enough to keep up with and contain guards. That gets him in foul trouble. He can get back down by somebody bigger than him. If you try to use him as like this really interesting small ball type of forward, he can get back down. And ultimately, all he can do because he can't really get off the ground, he's not vertical. He puts his hands up, but generally because of how much of his body he needs to leverage because he can't get up and contest, he generally ends up fouling that way. I am not sold on almost anything he can do on the defensive end other than Kind of if he's left to be like a rover, like let's say you put him on somebody in the corner and he's able to kind of help inside and double a little bit in the post and knock the ball away and maybe get a block shot that way. That's really all that I'm confident on him being able to do on the defensive end. So a player who could potentially have awesome offensive value for a backup role player, but is one of those guys who I, I don't like saying it, but I really could see him being absolutely um, kicked off the floor from a from a defensive perspective in the NBA. And I think that would be why you see a player with his offensive repertoire be so close to the back end of mock drafts if he's featured at all. He's he's generally in like the, the 50 to 60 range if he's making that, that mock draft. So he is a sleeper. Again, we're talking about a second rounder, if at all. So these players do have flaws, but that doesn't mean we can't talk about their strengths. I listed off a whole bunch of them. Where are you at on somebody like, David Roddy, Rich, is 
is he on your board in terms of somebody who you feel is draftable? Yeah, I, I go back and forth. Uh, the best thought exercise I've done is I'm going to pull another scouting report. This is not him, but this is a current NBA player, and I'm going to just read the pros and cons that I have. I'm, I'm going to exclude defense. Um, so just going down the list, good post score, strong passer, high IQ, and rarely makes a bad decision. Has a high motor, high release on the jumper, good touch at the rim, strong body with massive hands. We don't know how big David Roddy's hands are, so that part's kind of irrelevant. But on the weaknesses... Lacks top-end athleticism, needs to improve some range and prove he can shoot consistently from three, and an awkward shooter off the dribble. Would you say almost all of that, maybe I'm off base, but would you say that kind of applies to Roddy, before I tell you who it is? I, I, I do think that for the most part, that applies to him. I think, he's, I think he's going to be a little bit better shooter at the next level than we may initially give him credit for. I am buying into the shooting, but I also understand some of the questions off the dribble because of the lack of athleticism and his ability to, lack of ability to create separation on some of those shots. So all in all, I think we're in agreement. Who is it? So that, yeah, the off the dribble one was actually the one that I felt was the least appropriate or applicable but it was actually grant williams i feel like there's a lot okay of grant williams to his game um and obviously the big difference making for grant williams is that he's awesome on defense however if you take out like his first two years uh so if you i guess that's just this year this year's grant williams offensively uh with a little bit more volume passing is probably i don't know actually what the volume would be but that's probably i feel like they're pretty similar players um, and it really depends on how you value someone who's a couple inches shorter, Grant Williams, and worse on defense. Because like you said, that's huntable. He's a two through four on defense, or excuse me, on offense. I think he can play a lot of positions, but how well will his defense hold up and how much will it hurt him really comes down, is what it comes down to. Because last year, teams didn't hunt him on defense. Uh, if you look at the isolation possession numbers, Teams didn't really care to isolate him, put him on an island, and even then he kind of at times hung in with there. But this year he's on an island, he's he's toasting. Teams have started hunting that a little bit more to make Colorado State pay. So the defense is absolutely the swing factor. I think you hit it on the head. Does the offense outweigh the defense? I mean, that's really what it's going to come down to. And it, it, it's tough because... Again, we're, we're talking about a bench player, right? So you have to figure not everybody you're probably bringing into an NBA game in the regular season is going to be able to light it up on defense. Everybody has weaknesses everywhere. Generally, if we're talking about backup players, most of the time it would mean that they're not able to guard one or more positions at an above-average level despite what they can do offensively. That That's generally why they end up more as like spark plug or like backup type of players really being a starter in the NBA means that you can guard your position or you can guard multiple positions at an above average level. David Roddy, as we've acknowledged, we don't believe he can do that. So the question is, does that necessarily matter as much if you're bringing him off the bench to be like a 12 to 16 minute a night guy to kind of just give you a spark offensively, give a backup point guard or whoever's manning the second unit, just give them another guy who's capable of hitting open shots and who can kind of make things happen around the basket in different scenarios and who can be somebody who maybe he's not initiating much offense, but when he does get the ball, he can redirect it to where he needs to go. He's an intelligent player. So I guess you did ask a good question. I'll kind of ask a counter question just in terms of like philosophy. Does that really need to 
factor into a player who we know is probably going to be playing a bench role for the majority, if not all of his career. Like, doesn't need to factor in as heavily. Yes and no. Um, yes, because that is the only the main part of the yes is what makes what you just said, where he's probably going to be a bench player. That's where it factors in. However, it still is important, especially I think come playoffs. That's probably when you'll see that be the most important. Uh, in the regular season, this is the cop-out answer of this. It really depends on the coach. If you get someone <laughs> like Rick Carlisle, I mean, I'm biased. I'm out in Dallas. Like, I've seen Rick Carlisle hide some of the worst defenders I've ever seen in my life. I mean, this is a different position. And J.J. Barea is not one of the worst defenders I've ever seen. He's actually better than credited. But he hid a guy who was 5'10", 5'11", on defense and made him a positive on the defensive end. A coach like him, he could do wonders with David Roddy. I have no doubt about that. And I really do think there's a good chunk of coaches that could get away with it, where you sneak him into a lineup full of defenders. I mean, say Golden State, for example, right? Say he goes there. I mean, you put him in a lineup with Steph, and then, like, who's not a great defender, but, like, Steph, Blank, uh, Kaminga, Draymond, and whoever else, Clay. Like, that's the five-man lineup. Suddenly, you've surrounded them pretty well, and the defense probably doesn't matter that much. So I, I would agree. No, it, it does. It does help, and and I agree with you. I I think, I think ultimately, I'm going to have him amongst my final top sixty players. I've also been back and forth with: is this kind of player somebody who I want to use a draft pick on? Is he not only just me, but NBA teams in general? He's so smart offensively. He recognizes everything that's happening, whether he is physically able to react at the proper time to everything that's happening on the court. Obviously, there's situations on film that we can pick out where he's not able to, but he at least sees everything that's going on around him, for the most part, on both ends of the floor. I'm buying into the jump shot. I think that he could be a legitimate 38 to 40% three-point shooter in the NBA. And and I know that's that I, I don't use those words lightly. Like, I don't believe that every single player in the draft is capable of getting to 38 to 40% in the NBA. But when you factor in the types of lineups, as you mentioned, Rich, that he'll likely be playing with, he, he, you kind of have to plug him into a lineup where he has help in other areas. And, and he's probably going to be playing with at least one other offensive threat who's going to command enough of the defense's attention to be able to get him open shots. And if you're getting Roddy open shots, if he's not asked to do too much, and again, he, he's there to hit open spot-up shots, He's proven enough to me at the college level to where I think he can do that in spades and he can do it incredibly efficiently from the, the NBA line. I mean, I, I've seen clips that, that guys like Matt Babcock have taken, for example, where he's warming up, he's, he's shooting threes from well beyond the college line, and it, 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 he's, he's doing it so naturally it looks like he's in a layup line, but, but for shooting three-pointers. And you don't always see that from college prospects. So when you factor in his – offensive ability in terms of being able to hit open shots and recognize what's going on around him is overall IQ. Those guys who are in these very, 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 very unique boxes, but they've proven that they're, they're very smart basketball players to be able to figure it out. Generally find some sort of way to stick in the NBA. And I guess the last point I'll make on, on Roddy is something that I did see Nate Babcock say on Twitter when, when him and I were talking about Roddy a little bit where it's like, he doesn't fit on every NBA team. There's probably like five or six NBA teams realistically that he would that he would be able to fit on. And it does come back to a lot about the coaching, like you said, Rich, 
how an NBA team would, would bring him into the rotation, how they would use him in the lineup. He's not going to be a perfect fit for everybody, but for some NBA team who has the right pieces around him to be able to utilize him to his strengths, he just seems like one of these really unique players that I will think ultimately will stick in the NBA. And he's one guy that I keep coming back to that I don't necessarily want to bet against. Do you agree with me about like the, the, the fit premise that it's probably like one of like a handful of teams probably that could, that could realistically um, roster him and actually keep him around. Yeah. He's one of the guys where it's like, you know, he may not fit on every team, but the ones he does fit on, he makes an impact, uh, which I think, it's really hard to find. That's a tough job for a GM to figure out, am I one of those several teams <laughs> that he is a fit on? But also, you said it best. I mean, the IQ, like those guys are glue guys, whether it's off the bench and minimal roles or starter roles, whatever it is, glue guys matter. And that's what David Roddy could be in a minimal role. Like someone who comes in and has a positive net rating, stuff matters. I would agree wholeheartedly. So... Let's move to the second true sleeper who, depending on who you talk to, depending on the day, might actually not be as true of a sleeper anymore, similar to David Roddy. That would be Ryan Rollins out of Toledo. Really interesting guard slash wing prospect who has gained a lot of steam. I'll give Simon his props one last time. Shout out to Simon Hawks Drafter. He was the first person that I was seeing on Twitter really, really, really blow up about Ryan Rollins. Uh, 19.2 points per game, 6.2 rebounds, 3.8 assists, almost 48% from the field, 33% from three-point range, 80% from the line, 1.8 steals per game, a 25.7 PER, and a 57.3 true shooter percentage. Pretty good marks across the board from, from a guard slash wing you might be looking to bring into your NBA rotation. 80th in total offense, 60th in total defense, 97th on cuts, 87th scoring out of pick and roll, 84th in isolation, 60th on spot-ups, 44th off screens, 34th off handoffs, 93rd percentile in terms of pick and rolls, including passes, 79th isolations, including passes, 54th on jump shots overall, 84th on runners. That guy has a really fun floater package, by the way. Um, 66th percentile around the basket, 50th on catch-and-shoot shots, 69th all jump shots off the dribble. So really, I'm torn between if Ryan Rollins is a potential starter caliber guard or if he is someone who maybe his real future is like as your eighth or ninth man on an NBA team, but because of what he can do so well, which is he's this slithery scorer off the dribble who can get up into his pull-up really easily. He's a, I, I would call him, I don't know if he's like an, an outstanding athlete for his position, but I'd say he's a pretty good athlete um, for that position, that, that two-guard spot. He is a six-foot-four guard. Corey Tulliba wrote about him for No Ceilings this week. If you did not see his piece on Ryan Rollins, first of all, you should be subscribed to No Ceilings, noceilingsnba.com. Absolutely go over there and read some of the words and, and see some of the clips that he put together about Ryan Rollins, how a smooth of a scorer he is at times. and there are games where he looks like he has a really advanced offensive skill set, but I guess that comes back to what you ultimately value in a guard. Do you want somebody who projects to be like a volume scorer that he is, but not like 
this this all-world shooter because he only shoots 33% from three-point range. I don't know how good he's going to be as a catch-and-shoot guy in the NBA. I do need to do a little bit more homework on him in that regard. But, Rich, what are some of your thoughts on Ryan Rollins? I know that you've talked about him as well. What are some of your thoughts on him? Where, where do you see his draft range kind of sitting at right now in 2022? Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if he gets near first-round buzz. It, it's kind of funny. You watch Johnny Davis, right? And you see he's a top 10 prospect, top 15 prospect. And then there's Ryan Rollins, who plays almost identically to him. Obviously, he plays in the MAC. It's a little bit different uh, to compare the two, but they have almost identical play styles to me. Just the way they get to their spots is very similar. I like Rollins. I think if you're high on Davis, you have to be high on Rollins. Um, they're just, they're too similar. Obviously, it's mid-major. Johnny Davis is how I would describe Ryan Rollins. My issue with him is I don't know what he is on defense. I still haven't really figured out how good or bad he is on that end. So I'm kind of refraining from saying anything on that end. But the jump shot, uh, or actually one thing about the defense, now that I think about it, uh, he plays passing lanes very well. That you cannot take away from yep. quick reflexes, uh, jumps the passes quick on ball, off ball, sees it very, very well. So good defensive awareness uh, on that end. Can't speak again to the on-ball defense. I still can't make up my mind. Offensively, though, the way he uses pick and roll, um, I I don't know if this is like galaxy brain or something, what I'm about to say, so stop me if it is. But <laughs> when, when you use the pick and roll, there's like there's three – four probable outcomes, right? Like, sure. you can find a shooter, you can find a cutter who's not the roll man, or you can find the roll man, or you can score. John, uh, well, oh my God, that's why I think of Ryan Rollins. I almost called him Johnny Davis. Uh, <laughs> Ryan Rollins can do every single one of those four things like at such a high level. I would almost, like, I guess it's about to be galaxy brain, but uh, he's almost like a four-level pick-and-roll player to me in that way, where he can do all four of those things so well. And that's an NBA player almost Every NBA combo guard has to have that, and Ryan Rollins has it. That, that is a huge thing for me is that he can do that. The one worry I have is that a lot of his uh, deep threes fall short. I, I don't know if he has the range yet, but also I'm willing to invest in the fact that like his form is nice, it's projectable, that probably expands. Do you like the pace that he plays with in pick and roll in terms of getting through his progressions quickly enough, but also being able to kind of start, stop, manipulate guys within that read? and then ultimately get to any one of those four levels, like you mentioned, do you, do you appreciate the maturity and the pace that he plays at in those sets? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I'm a sucker for players who uh, can play at their own pace and get to their own spots no matter how they want to. I mean, I'm, I'm a Mavs fan. I watch Luka Doncic. So <laughs> <laughs> not, not the same player. I, I realize any time you say two names in a sentence, uh, people will compare, but obviously not a comparison. But the way that players... Like, you're a high IQ player if you can go at your own pace and get to your spots at ease, no matter how much predictability there is to it. And Ryan Rollins has that element to him. I guess the reason why I ask that is because you, you do talk about him glowingly in that in a pick-and-roll style offense, which, I mean, if, if we're talking about NBA offenses, really it's like, it's like three or four different play types, and then you kind of build sets off of there. But one of the most common play types in the NBA, as we all know, is pick-and-roll. And if you're going to be a lead ball handler or primary or secondary initiator, you need to be able to come off one action, get into that ball screen offense, and then you need to be able to make decisions out of it, um, especially if you're going to be playing like a lead style ball handler role. I guess my question is, again, as you mentioned, 
And as I said statistically, he rates out really well in pick and roll play types, 87 percentile scoring out of those sets, um, and in the 93rd percentile passing out of those sets. So as you kind of said, that all hitting every single level, every single decision you can make out of pick and roll, Rollins has shown examples on film that he can do it, but he's also been really efficient at it in general. Do you think he can be like like a like a backup? Not just like a, a two guard for an NBA team, but what what if a team gave him some run as like a backup point guard um, in, in second years? You think that's something you can do in the NBA? Yeah, I'm here for it. I, I fully believe that it's possible. I, I have him as a combo guard. Um, and for me, a combo guard, I mean, they're going to be able to run 50-50 if they needed to at shooting guard or point guard. So I fully buy into his playmaking as a point guard, as well as scoring as a point guard, obviously. So with the case we, we've kind of outlined... Um, the, there are some things defensively. I know that you said you don't have any strong opinions there. There are some things I can nitpick. Like, I don't think he's always the quickest to um, rotate and contest shots. He, he's, he's not always great at, at closeouts, um, getting himself in position to contest long jump shots. There, there are some things that, that we can nitpick. But overall, I agree with you. I think he, he does keep his head up. He tries to get involved in the passing lanes. As, as you said, that would play out in the numbers as well. He averages 1.8 steals per game. So I, I'm buying into some of the defensive stuff. I don't know how much I love him in terms of going up against multiple positions. I think he's he's a guard defender. He's pretty locked into um, guarding ones and twos. I don't think he's going to swing up and, and guard bigger wings. But again, we're talking about somebody who's likely a second round pick. So I'm not looking for them to do everything on defense. I'm just looking for them to be able to hold their own at one position while bringing all of the offensive value that they do. We've talked about quite a few interesting points about his offense, his 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 shot creation in space, his ability to get to his his floater runner off of those pick and rolls virtually whenever he wants. He has a really good looking floater, and, and as I also said previously, that played itself out in the runner uh, runner numbers. He's able to finish around the basket. This is the type of guard that generally does not only rise as we get later on in the college season, Rich, but also when we talk about getting these guys in pre-draft workouts and these teams are able to get him in, in one-on-one situations to kind of see what are some of the things he has in his bag from an individual shot-making perspective between his shot-making as well as his athletic package, which, again, it's it's not like a lead or anything crazy like that, but I think he's a, he's, he's a pretty decent athlete, pretty good athlete for somebody um, at his position. Is he some guy who, once we get in, like, the workout phase of this draft cycle, he goes from being, like, borderline questionable, like, top 40 guy to all of a sudden, man, like everybody has him in, in the back end of the first round of 2022. Yeah. He feels like an easy mid-major riser. It, it feels like it happens every year. Or if it's not a mid-major, it's someone on a bad team and a high major. It fits all the bills. I mean, his size, his ability, his play style, I mean, being 6'4", six, 6'5". Six, I mean, again, the whole, like he played, like I think teams are going to realize he, he said, great value brand uh, of Johnny Davis right now. And I think you can develop him into being an equal caliber prospect eventually. So you're, I, you're I really saying the name, that... you're saying the name Johnny Davis. Can I give you a name of who he reminds me of when I watch him? Yes, please. Cause I can't think of NBA players. So please anybody. <laughs> he, he, he doesn't have the quickness or the zip as this guy. I'll just get that right out of the gate. But if you take that aspect out, he really, really, really reminds me in a lot of aspects of Bones Highland in terms of his shot-making ability off the bounce, what he can do inside the arc. Bones Highland, to his credit, was a, a pretty good pick-and-roll player in college, um, and, and that's really translated into him getting a, 
the, the on-ball reps as a backup point guard that he has in the NBA alongside some other guys. But I think if you really put him in the right position, that's when we talk about these mid-ranger type of risers, he he reminds me so much of Bones Highland in, in different aspects. Am I, am I completely off base with that one? Or are you going to say that the quickness matters too much in that evaluation slash comp? Or can you see where I'm coming from? No, you gave a good uh, qualification in that. I, I hadn't really thought about it. I'm trying, I'm still processing it. Um, <laughs> I don't think it's bad. I want to clarify that. I don't think it's bad. I'm just trying to think of how accurate it is because it is decently accurate. You raised some really good points. My one, I guess I'm so stuck in him as VCU him where he did like, in my head, I only remember him doing two things like at, at a flashy level and it stuck out so much that I'm blanking on everything else he did which was those super deep threes and yep. then just the, the almost flashy handle where I felt like he would go for a killer crossover a lot, but that's probably just a bias I have right now. So I wouldn't say it's bad, especially in the way of just general outlines of their scoring ability. Uh, I do think you're onto something there. Yeah. There's no, there's no one-to-one comps, but right. the, the, just in terms of like a shades of, that that's the type of role I can envision him having in the NBA. And if that's the case, I mean, Bones Highland ended up being drafted much higher than I think a lot of people were initially anticipating before the 2021 cycle really kicked off. And I can, I can agree with you. I can see the same thing happening for Ryan Rollins. I know Raphael put himself out there a little bit by having Rollins as the 30th player in, in one of his latest mock draft updates. We, we mentioned that in passing on that podcast episode. And I know that, that other guys, you're, you're yourself included and Simon have, have really been onto him. And now that, now that Corey wrote the piece for no ceilings, <laughs> it, it's kind of like everybody's getting up on me in terms of Nate, when are you going to actually get a really good look at this guy and talk about him on a podcast? Well, to my audience, it happened. We talked about him. I like Rollins. I'm all in whether, whether I'm all in, in terms of him being a first round pick I got to get there on that. I still got to do some more homework than I've done. But in terms of him being a top 60 guy, oh, yeah, I'm there. Like, the, this is the type of archetype that, that every NBA team would love to, at the very least, be able to bring off their bench. So I'm sold. Now, Rich, we're going to close out this podcast by talking about somebody who, and when I say talking about, me talking about him very loosely. I, I, I've, I've watched enough of Scottie Pippen Jr., Right, go at Vanderbilt. I've seen enough of them. I know the numbers are pretty, pretty good from from accounting perspective. Twenty and a half points per game on forty four percent shooting from the field for a smaller point guard, sixty six percentile in terms of total offense. Um, he, he he scores decently well for his size around the basket, sixty fourth percentile. The jump shooting numbers look good. He's middling in pick and roll plays, fifty first in scoring out of pick and roll, and fiftieth when you factor in passes. There are parts to his game to like. I just don't know if he does anything truly stand out at the offensive level to the point where I think that I, I not even talking about him being drafted, that I would just put a bet in his, him being um, uh, an NBA backup point guard. I don't know if he's going to be one of those guys who sticks in the league, but maybe because of the lineage, because of his IQ, where he comes from, how he approaches the game, how he plays the point guard position, and what he can do within the right role. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe he needs to be more of a mainstay in those backup point guard type of conversations, whether we say he's a draftable prospect or not. So I know you like him, Rich. When I when I messaged you about sleepers that we could talk about on this podcast, he was the first name that came up for you, who you wanted to, to mention. I want you 
to take the end of this podcast. The floor is yours. Give me and my audience the Scotty Pippen Jr. pitch. Yeah, so I, I want to preface this with I feel like I've fallen in love with every 6'1 guard in the country. Scotty Pippen Jr. is <laughs> no different. Um, for me, Scotty Pippen, it really starts with – like you said, I think the basketball IQ is really strong. We talked about the pick and roll with Johnny. Uh, God dang, I keep saying it. With Ryan <laughs> Rollins. My, <laughs> this is a Freudian slip if I've ever seen one. Uh, with Ryan Rollins, the pick and roll ability, though, it, it really stands out. I think he's best as a slasher, not quite the level of Rollins. Uh, not to compare him, but, you know, I said those four things out of pick and roll. I don't think he can do all four nearly as well. I think he's kind of limited in some of those areas. Uh, but he finds shooters very well out of pick and roll. He can score for himself very well. And I think this might be one of the biggest things. One, he can draw contact very well, and he knows how to use his body at the rim. That makes up for the fact that he's an average finisher at the rim. I think in the NBA, he needs to be great or draw a ton of fouls. That would be big. But the other thing is, is he can abuse mismatches so well for a collegiate player where he gets the switch. A lot of NCAA, a lot of players in college don't know how to fully make a big pay for being on an island. Like in the NBA, you see Ennis Cantor switched, it's barbecue chicken, it's over. In college, it's not <laughs> the same way. It can go really 50-50. And when it's Scottie Pippen, I don't think it's 50-50. It's much more lopsided. So I think those are some very important things with him. He's good in ISO one-on-one -on -one situations or just out of pick and roll, light pick and roll situations. Um, he has a lot of tendencies of heliocentric guards in college, which is pretty advanced. The things for me that he has to do, it starts with shooting. I don't think there's anybody who supports Scottie Pippen that'll act like he's a surefire shooter because he's not. The percentages indicate he's very hit or miss with that. The The base of his jump shot can kind of not be steady at times. Uh, just needs to be overall consistent uh, and, and just make sure you know he speeds up his release. That'll really help. But with his jump shot, he can shoot over players bigger than him, which matters because he gets such a good yep. lift. We were talking about Kennedy Chandler, where he doesn't really get, he can't shoot over anybody six foot five. I've seen Scottie Pippen shoot over, I want to say he shot over uh, somebody on Auburn. It wasn't Jabari Smith, but it was one of the wings on Auburn. Uh, it might have been Flanagan or something. He shot over him with ease, and Flanagan's a good defender. And on the defensive end, he's a really pesky defender. How, how much that actually matters, it's tough to say. Sometimes that stuff can be noise for NBA translation, but I mean, he forces turnovers very well. But when he's not forcing turnovers, is he going to be a good defender? I'd probably lean no just because he does not know how to fight through a screen. So it, I go back and forth. Ultimately, I think he's one of those guys where he has to get on the right team. But I do think he could pan out as a, an undersized backup point guard in a two-guard lineup where you let him do pick-and-roll scoring and a little bit of playmaking. Let him be the guard, guard the worst player on the other team to be an off-ball threat defensively. And you might end up with a positive player. I think he needs a year in the G League, though, to fully develop his offensive skills that maximize that rather than a senior year at Vanderbilt, though. But I hope that helps. How, how did that uh, sales pitch convince any of your – that help ease some of your worries on him? It, it, it does. It does. And the other thing that I come back to, Rich, when I, when I was doing some of the research, not, not only just the, watching a little tape on him, but also looking at some of the statistical – research and, and some of the box scores in particular for this sample size and in terms of this SEC season, I want to take time. It might bore you, it might bore some people in the audience. I want to read out these numbers though. It, his, his scoring, because 
in my opinion, you, you talked about the IQ, you talked about some of the pick and roll craft, some of the passing ability. I think his main selling point is going to be if he can be that dynamic change of pace scoring threat off of a bench at the NBA level, I think that could really be his calling card. At least that's what I would expect his calling card to be. If he makes it in the NBA, he's probably averaging, you know, uh, obviously pretty consistently the double digit points throughout his career um, per 40 minutes, regardless of, of, of how many, many minutes he plays. He, he needs to be a scoring threat. But just to put in perspective for my audience, this is since January 4th in SEC play. He's only had two games that you'll hear in the run through under double digits. Here's how many points he's had each game. So starting with Arkansas in the fourth. So he's had 22, 17, 32, 13, 18, 6, 24, 23, 33, 7. So that's the end of the dud games. Now in particular, we get to the stretch that's been essentially through the entire month of February, 19, 23, 29, 24, 26, 32, 29. Rich, in a conference that has been as good as the SEC has been this year, I know the SEC the SEC has a few real stinker schools right now, like South Carolina and Georgia, and Missouri's very, very, very up and down. But in terms of the bulk of the SEC, this has actually been a pretty good conference this year. Those are some big-time scoring outputs for Mr. Scotty Pippen Jr. So should should we ease some of the concerns? I'll let you, I'll let you close with this. Should, should some of the concerns just be eased by the level of production he's been able to put up this year in, in SEC play in a really good conference? Yeah, I mean, he's a one-man show, and uh, Vanderbilt's not exactly a good team. So, you know, I don't know if you uh, saw the turnovers as you were reading this, but I mean, I, I was pulling up the page as you were reading and I, I looked at the averages. Uh, he, the he's pretty consistently games. around four to five turnovers per game. Yeah, and and some of that is a fault of his own. That was my first thing I ever noticed on him. I'm like, dang, this guy turns the ball over a lot. As a freshman, I saw it. I, was, I started scouting him because I knew his name alone would get him recognition and uh the turnovers just really stood out and he hasn't ever improved it i don't know if it's a vanderbilt thing or what but it's still something that'll haunt him especially being six one he's got to get better at that however um those averages i'll, I'll keep going the numbers game 22 points a game five assists three and a half turn uh, excuse me rebounds two steals per game on 45 35 75 so um you know, for me, looking at some of the matchups he's going against, there are some really good defensive prospects in the SEC, and he has been able to torture them. I mean, the Auburn game, I think, is one of the better examples. Sure, it was 7 of 18, but he had 29 points, and he got to the line. And and actually, this is another one. In, in the SEC play so far, he has had double-digit free throws in, uh, let's see, eight games, and he's had nine in three of them. So, and eight in, like, four his ability to get to the line, that's what's really going to do it. I think if you look at those SEC games, you'll see a lot of what will stick and what's noise much more clearly than the games out of conference. I, I would agree with you. So if you are going to be in the Scottie Pippen Jr. camp, that's what you have to point to. His scoring ability, his floater game, as Rich just outlined, his ability to get to the line, the 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 somewhat promising i'm not as all in on the the three-point shot i know the this for his career 
He is a 34.9% three-point shooter. We'll see how that pans out once he gets to the NBA, but there's no question he is dynamic inside the arc. His ability to make plays for himself and at times for others, if he can cut down on some of the turnovers, I would agree with you. He, he does have a legitimate chance to be a, pa- a backup point guard in the NBA. So if, if I haven't mentioned Scottie Pittman Jr. in passing, if I, I really haven't talked about him at all, on the podcast, similar to Mike Miles, I apologize. He is someone out there to pay attention to as a good chance to definitely make my top 100. Where he falls in that top 100, I have absolutely no idea. Um, but the last point I'll make on that is if I'm ranking a player in, in a top 100, and, and I said this last year as well, there are so many players in college basketball in my opinion, if, if I'm ranking you in, in a top 100 to project to the NBA draft and I'm saying you have a chance of being the NBA player, that that is a real, real, real legitimate compliment from me. I don't want the number ranking beside the name to put too much into the conversation. If I'm mentioning you as, yeah, you could, you could potentially play in the NBA, that should absolutely be um, a high compliment. At least that's how I hope it's taken. Um, so Scottie Pippen Jr., certainly a player that's been Worth watching at Vanderbilt, somebody who could really shake, really shake things up for some backup minutes in in the NBA. But that's that's why we have these sleeper conversations. It's a point to talk about as many prospects as we can, not just the same top five every single week in and week out. And and Rich is one of the best at doing that. He does that pretty consistently on the Locked On NBA Draft podcast. So Rich, thank you so much for coming on. I can't thank you enough for wanting to come on and be a guest on the show. For my audience out there, just in case they aren't following everything you're doing already, please plug everything you're doing, plug all the places they can find you. And thank you very much. And I uh, can't wait to have you on my show as well. Yes, um, sir. I do, I do Locked On NBA Draft every Tuesday. Uh, we recently started on YouTube, so would appreciate uh, some subscription on that. And then pretty much everything else, you'll see Mavs, at Mavs Draft, I post a link to everything I do anywhere else. And then I tweet way too much about NBA and college basketball. So uh, <laughs> if, you, if you like your timeline being blown up with uh, videos of NBA stuff that is super obscure, I got you. That's, that's what we need. We need that, Rich. We, we need the obscurity. We need the detail. We need the length. That's, that's exactly what we need. Um, in the prospect space as well as in the NBA space. So again, thank you for all the work that you do in the social media space as well as with your website when you post the mock drafts and of course in your podcast work. To my audience, thank you all so much for listening to this episode of the podcast. If you haven't already, make sure you are subscribed wherever you get your podcast: Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube. Make sure you're following me on Twitter at Draft Deeper. Make sure you're following No Ceilings on Twitter at no ceilings NBA. Make sure you're subscribed to the Substack where you find my morning dunk columns during the year, every single Monday, no ceilings where even though the column will come to an end after the college season is over, you will still find plenty of writing musings from me as well as plenty others. We have big things still coming in the pipeline over at no ceilings. So stay tuned and thank you all so much for listening. I hope you all have a wonderful rest of your week.